So, so then when I get back, he lets me know that he covered all of Hebrews chapter 3 and most of Hebrews chapter 4. So he just got excited, I guess. The Holy Spirit started moving. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're actually going to get into um, the passage that precedes Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and that's where we're going to be at tonight. We're going to focus on just three verses, but my goodness, these three verses are so full of beautiful gospel truth that there's a reason we're only going to do these three verses. Um, So we're in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. I do encourage everyone to not only find a Bible, but open a Bible and study along, follow along, hear what the Word says from the page. And then once we've found Hebrews 4, verse 14, let's do it like we do on Sunday. Let's rise for the reading of God's sacred Word, shall we? All right, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless not only its reading, but its teaching and its proclamation as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and take a seat. As we've been studying the book of Hebrews, what we've seen is the explanation, the continuing proclamation of what we heard right out of the gate, that there is no way to reduce the size of our Savior. If we have a big view of Jesus when we come to the book of Hebrews, we are reminded that we need an even bigger view of Jesus, that he, Jesus, is superior to all things, that he is supreme, not only over angels, as we saw in chapters 1 and chapters 2, but then he is supreme over Moses, as we saw in chapter 3. Joshua is even referenced there. And now we get into a continual and constant thread in the book of Hebrews where Jesus is not only described as a high priest, but he is the great high priest. He is, as we will see, in the order of Melchizedek, as we study later on. The author of Hebrews is going to keep coming back to this important idea that Jesus is the ultimate, the final, the sufficient high priest. And well, what does that mean? Well, some of us grew up in traditions where it was familiar to call the clergy person priest. But when it's proclaimed and when it's taught in its proper context, this was something that our Jewish friends and neighbors understood a little deeper. Jewish friends and neighbors understood a little bit better in the sense that the high priest especially, his role was so important and significant in the atoning work of God reconciling an unholy people to himself. 
that a high priest was someone that would be a mediator between holy God and unholy people. But think of it this way. Not only is Christ superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior now to high priests, but every single one of these categories and these people are mediators. Angels are both messengers and mediators, meaning that God gives them a message, but they also act as mediators. Moses wasn't just a deliverer. He also acted as an intercessor, as a mediator. And of course, high priest, that was job number one. Job description number one was to stand in the gap to represent, now this is important if you're taking notes, ready? To represent God to people, but then also represent people to God. You get that? The priest's function was represent God to the people, but then also the people to God. Literally, to be that mediator, to stand in that gap. But here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. In the same way angels were mediators, Christ is superior. In the same way Moses was a mediator, Christ is superior. In the same way the mediator of all mediators, the high priest, Christ is superior. As it says here in verse 14, since then we have, what is the word? What's the adjective? A great high priest. Not just a high priest. He is a great high priest. In fact, he is the sufficient final high priest. He is the mediator between God and man. Paul would put it in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in a very succinct way. And, and my goodness, in what you're about to hear is the gospel itself, not only in its beauty, but also the gospel in itself in its exclusivity. Everyone ready? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says this. Friends, this is so politically incorrect that it might shock us. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who has given himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So both Hebrews and 1 Timothy are lining up with this same central message that Jesus now is the great high priest who has come to be, as we've studied, not only our brother. And wasn't that an interesting insight into Jesus? Not too many books of the Bible extrapolate Jesus, not only as Savior, but brother. That was so interesting for me to study. But not only brother, but now he's mediator. Not only is our, our great savior, he's also our high priest. And we're going to kind of parse that out as we walk through the rest of this passage, okay? But the question that presents to ourselves is, why do we need Jesus to be the high priest, right? Why did that Old Testament system of Levitical laws, ceremonial purification, and even the office of priests come to an end because Jesus has come. All of those things were a, as the book of Galatians says, were a forerunner or a schoolmaster, a teacher, preparing God's people for the ultimate high priest, preparing God's people for the ultimate sacrificial lamb, preparing God's people for the one who could take away sin finally and forever. It's Jesus. But the question is, why do we need him, right? So let's keep reading. Verse 14, 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So in the same way, some of us grew up in traditions where there's priests. We grew up in traditions where we had to go to confession, right? Now, how many of us have probably a one-sided view of confession where confession is a somber recognition of what we're not? That's not what he's talking about here. The previous passage reveals to what we're not. But no, confession is not just a somber recognition of what you are not. Here it is. It's also a bold proclamation of who Jesus Christ is. It says, hold fast. Hold fast to your confession. Here's the truth, friends. We're all confessing someone or confessing something. Okay? We're all proclaiming some message. We're all looking for some Savior. So what he's saying is don't just pick a Savior. No, hold fast to the only Son of God, the only mediator. Hold fast to your confession. Now, do we sometimes lose confidence in that confession? Now, we might not even lose confidence in its viability or its veracity, meaning we might not lose confidence in its intellectual truth, but many of us lose confidence in our emotional, spiritual boldness and courage, right? How does a high priest, a high priest, lead to more confidence and holding fast to our confession? Well, it actually began to reveal why these two things are true. Jesus passed into the heavens. Did you see that there? It didn't use the word ascension, but that's what it's referring to. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. So how many of us know that the crucifixion of Christ, very, very important. Amen, right? Without the cross of Christ, we have no hope. Okay. How many of us know the resurrection of Christ is very, very important? In fact, Paul says without the resurrection, we are the most pitied of all men. If Jesus is still dead, we should close our doors because it's all for nothing. How many of us, though, have a proper understanding, not just of the crucifixion, not just of the resurrection, but the ascension? Is there symbolism and significance in Jesus ascending to heaven? I think right out of the gate, there's symbolism there because he's going to return in the same way he left. Amen? He's going to return in the exact same way he left. But the symbolism here in Hebrews helps us understand why Jesus ascended physically. Why didn't he just evaporate? Or why didn't he just... Because the same Jesus who bled and who died, the same Jesus to this day has scars in his hands and his feet. That's remarkable. His atoning work is done. You guys ready for this? His atoning work is done, but his priestly work is not. That might not seem like a big deal but a kind of is. Jesus atoned for our sin, past, present, future, once and for all. It's going to say this in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this once again. And this is very, very helpful for, for those of us that come from, once again, certain traditions where, you know, these priestly rites have to continually be done over and over again. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Can we say, I'll say once for all? Once for all. 
That's good news. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which Hebrews 10 says can never take away sins. The priestly sacrifices can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, can we all say all time? A single sacrifice. Can we say single sacrifice? When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I mean, literally, I can't add anything to that, right? Let's just close in prayer because that's when the good news becomes even gooder. Okay, so Jesus has ascended. He's passed through the heavens. His atoning work is done. What did we just hear? Once for all, final. I mean, it was emphatic. That was a short little passage. And it wanted to kind of get our minds around the fact that Jesus atoned for our sins finally and forever. Once and for all, you've been perfected in God's eyes. Now, in this broken world, we feel the taint we feel the uh, effects of sin. We know what it's like to grieve the Holy Spirit. But the atoning work is done, friends. So in Hebrews 10, it says both of these truths, that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, has offered that sacrifice once for all. But the reason why he ascended, even with scars in his hands, is because now he's sitting at the right hand advocating. He's advocating. For you and for us. And Hebrews 7 is going to get into this in a way that's going to make us really, really grateful that we have such a great high priest. He passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, is now advocating for us. He's now speaking to the Father on our behalf. So he is doing the priestly work. All right? Does that all make sense? Everybody having fun? Okay, let's look at uh, verse 15 there. For we do not have a high priest. Now, this is very, very important who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do we believe this? Friends, do you believe that Jesus was tempted in every single way? Whew. I think some of us have a very stoic Jesus almost like a Jesus that can't relate to what it's like to be tempted, a Jesus that doesn't really, really know, like a Jesus that kind of knows because he's omniscient, but not a Jesus that really knows what it's like to be tempted. So here's how we have confidence in our confession. When the Bible said in the book of Hebrews that you should hold fast to your confession, we might have thought that hold fast means work harder, right? Isn't that what religion says? Hold fast means work harder. God's done most of it. It's up to you to do the rest. No, the holding fast is looking to our high priest, right? As the one who has paved the way of salvation, the one who is interceding for us, but also the one, friends, who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows. This is remarkable. God is in heaven, but through Christ, God knows. God knows what it's like to be tempted. Now, this is very, very helpful and clarifying because 
Is temptation, meaning being tempted, a sin in itself? It's not, right? Well, that helps. Gosh, because I feel like I mess up all the time. And we do mess up all the time. And there is a fine line to walk here. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember what Jesus said? I tell you the truth, that if you look at a woman lustfully, uh, you've committed adultery with her in your hearts, right? So where's the difference between being tempted and not sinning? Because that's what Jesus went through, right? He was perfect. Says it here, says it over and over again. Sinless, spotless, perfect lamb of God, okay? I think in the end, we know. The book of James says that sin is conceived in our heart, right? The heart of the problem is the problem of our hearts. Like, we kind of know, don't we? Like, when we're tempted to cheat, lie, steal, whatever it may be, we know when it goes from just being tempted to giving our hearts over to it. And then it's out of the overflow of our hearts that our mouths speak, that our hands act, and that our feet go, okay? But Jesus was tempted in every way. In the way that we constantly fail that test of temptation, Jesus did not. And that's the reality. The reality is, does God know that we continually defy him? And that's why, thank you to Brian now that he's here. Hi, Brian. Thanks for teaching last week. That's why that passage before this passage is so helpful and so important. Let's look back at verse, uh, verse 11. Verse 11, talking about rest, but then going to God's word. And it seems like an abrupt break. It seems like, all right, why are we talking about rest? And why are we talking about the generation in the wilderness? Then all of a sudden we're talking about God's word. Well, there's a reason. So here in the previous chapter, Hebrews 4, verse 11, the word of God says this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And my goodness, listen, friends, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wow. How many of us know that when we started reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit was just working on us, that as we were reading the Bible, the Bible started reading us? I thought I was a pretty good guy. It's like a mirror. It's paper, but it's like a mirror reflecting the sinful not only actions of my life, but the simple patterns of my heart, cutting between joint and marrow, getting down deep, as if to say I'm exposed. I'm absolutely exposed and naked before a holy God. In light of that, what hope do I have? When I start reading God's word and not just have a kind of like a cultural, superficial acknowledgement of it, but no, it describes it as a sword. Like, it's like a surgeon's scalpel that's dividing all of these different recesses of my soul and exposing that even on my best days I need to be saved, right? How many of us know that we need Jesus not only on our worst days, but we need Jesus on our best days? That even our good deeds are probably laced with some kind of 
vanity or some kind of uh, fear of man or some kind of desire to manipulate people. I mean, even our good deeds, the prophet Isaiah says, are like filthy rags to God because it's laced with us. It's laced with all kinds of whatever, fill in the blank. So here's, the, here's, here's what's powerful. And I want to read a quote. The good news is that God is not a God who just ignores our sin. You just heard that's not the case. We lay bare, exposed, and naked before a holy, perfect, and righteous God. So listen, God's mercy is not that he just overlooks our mistakes. God's mercy is that he's given his son to atone for our mistakes. Is that a big deal? And then it goes on even further to say, in this high priest, in this priest's highness and his greatness, he sympathizes with our weakness. You see, our Jesus not only atones for sin, but he empathizes with us in our temptations, and he's there loving us even when we stumble and fall. I heard this quote by R.C. Sproul. It's fantastic. Everybody ready? Excited? Wednesday church? R.C. Sproul says this. This is the most amazing thing about God's grace. It would be one thing for him to love us if we could fool him into thinking that we were better than we actually are. But he knows better. He knows all there is to know about us, including those things that could destroy our reputation. Does God know it? Does God see it? Is it bare before him right now? Things that we don't even tell our friends, don't even tell our family, might even keep secret from our spouses, right? God sees it. He knows it all. You can't run anywhere from his presence. Listen to this. He knows better. He knows all there is to know about us, including the things that would destroy our reputation. He is minutely and acutely aware of every skeleton in our closet, and yet knowing all these things, R.C. Sproul says, and he's right, God still loves us. Woo! Right? Like, he sees all of it. What makes uh, marriage so interesting is that when you go through that like romance engagement phase, when you just see each other through like the googly eyes, right? Like you're totally blind to all of their faults, right? Of course, my wife has no faults, so I'm still, <laughs> love you, honey. <laughs> but yeah, we're completely walking around with this romantic, blinded uh, gaze. And then we get married. And all of a sudden you're like, whoo! You got problems. <laughs> and what do they say? Woo! You got problems too. Why do, why do uh, people that live together that are in a family or married together, people that live together should be married together. <laughs> be clear. Why, why do we experience the most friction? It's not just proximity. It's intimacy. It's because you see. You see them not only in their best day, but you see them on their worst day. Marriage, you can't put up the facade forever. You just can't pretend forever. We might be good, pretty good at faking, even faking to our spouses. 
but we cannot fake to God. Jesus Christ is our only hope. He's our high priest, not only who intercedes now with us, or I should say for us, but he also sympathizes in our weaknesses. So let's jump back down to, uh, what is it, verse 16 here. The Bible says Jesus without sin, and then 16 it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Gosh, how good is this passage? How many of us would have been fine if it just said, let us draw near to the throne? But it doesn't say that. It takes it even to the next step. It doesn't just say, draw near to the throne because Jesus can sympathize. What does it say? Draw near to the throne with what? Confidence. Are you kidding me? Here's, here's the image of Judgment Day, all right? Here's what's going to happen. Here's what the Bible has always said from Genesis to Revelation. One day, every single human heart, every single eternal human soul will stand before the holy, righteous creator of the cosmos, okay? On that day, there won't be any lecturing of God. On that day, there won't be God how did you let this happen to me? God, why'd you do this to me? God, you know, it's all your fault. On that day when we are revealed to be how small we are and he is revealed to be how great he is, it's going to be on that day we understand how big his throne really is. So I would have been cool, like I would have been good if Hebrews just said, okay, because of Christ, because the final sufficient forever sacrifice of Jesus, you can come to the throne. But it says, friends, we can approach the throne of grace, the throne of our good father, the throne of the God who loves us with confidence. We don't believe this. Like, this doesn't mean arrogance, by the way, right? So there's going to be some kind of name it and claim it Christians that will probably take this passage and say, well, it says approach the throne of grace with confidence, so I'm going to speak something out, and then God's going to do what I say. If we say that, if we believe that, and yes, if we teach that, then I don't think we've been paying attention to the previous passages. Because without Jesus, there is no hope, and the Word of God has revealed us to be absolute sinners. Okay, So we're still coming in humility, but we're also coming with expectancy, right? Expectancy of what? Of what, friends? Of Jesus' mercy covering all of our mistakes. Like, the only way that we could understand that there would be confidence for us to approach the throne of grace, even though we stumble and fall regularly, multiple times every single day, on a daily basis, the only way to understand this, friends, we need a bigger view of Jesus, and not only a bigger view of Jesus, a bigger view of his perfection and a bigger view of his sacrifice. I love how the book of Romans says it. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. Now, in the moments when we are tempted, it feels like we're alone, right? Gosh, when we're tempted, it feels like we're alone. When we're tempted, it feels like, here we go. It's the same old bad movie playing itself out over and over again. I know how this ends. This passage helps remind us that when we're tempted, we're not only not alone, but the one who was tempted is with us 
and the one who was tempted never sinned. So not only does this remind us of God's sympathy, what? It reminds us of Christ's victory. So even when, in your time of need, you give in to that temptation, and this isn't license, this doesn't mean, all right, go sin willy-nilly because the high priest will forgive you. This means simply this. When you're avoiding the sin, when you're keeping your eyes fixed, as the author of Hebrews will say, on the author and perfecter of our faith, when you're fleeing from sin and yet you still stumble and fall, what? The enemy is going to come alongside you and say, that's it. The enemy is going to come alongside you and say, that was it. You've tapped out all of God's grace. That was it. You did it again. Clearly, God will not forgive you. <laughs> That's when you remember Hebrews chapter 4, that you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And as I heard one pastor say, I love this line, every single time the enemy reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. He's defeated. He has no power over you unless you believe what he says about you. Go to the throne of grace with confidence. So not only do we find our forgiveness in our time of need, but then our confidence in our confession is strengthened. Listen, if it was all about us to stay perfect after Jesus saved us, don't be surprised when you have a hard time confessing that to your friends. Hard time confessing that to your family. Hard time confessing that to your workmates. Hard time confessing that to an unbelieving world. Oh, but when Jesus loves us in our mess, when Jesus forgives us when we fail, we continually have a never-ending, abundant source of grace, which leads to confidence, which will lead to us holding fast to our confession. Make sense? All right, well, I'm going to uh, invite Walt to come back up, and we're going to sing and respond to uh, God's word with singing.